The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4, The Medieval World, Episode 46, The Black Death. The world in 1347 was allowing the dust to settle following the westward expansion of the Mongol Empire that took place from the beginning of the 13th century from its origins in the Far East and had expanded to dominate the lands of Eastern Europe and the Middle East. The Delhi Sultanate was expanding its borders from within the Indian subcontinent and taking lands away from the successor states of the Mongols in southern Asia, strengthening the Hindu kingdoms. Western Europe was a network of feudal relationships that were highly influenced by the Pope, who was seen as the validator of sacred appointments, including bishops and kings. Conflicts were taking place in the British Isles, France, the Iberian and Italian peninsulas and the Holy Roman Empire and they were highly influenced by papal validation, or indeed the lack of it. Knights were held in high esteem and respected for their wealth and status within the societies of Western Europe, even though orders such as the Knights Templar had been targeted and extinguished by the French monarch Philip IV. The earliest signs of gunpowder use had started to emerge in Europe, having migrated from the cultures of the Far East, but initially the weaponry was not widely or well developed, so its use was only an additional aid to traditional weaponry. The Republic of Florence in the north of the Italian peninsula had become a recognised centre for artistry which predated the European Renaissance but irresponsible banking prevented Florence from prospering as a result of its mercantile specialisation. Tension between England and France that had existed since the rise of the Plantagenets broke out into bitter conflict between the two kingdoms for supremacy over the other and the lands that they both believed were their exclusive right. A considerable battle in the south of the Iberian Peninsula had driven the last Muslim invaders from Morocco out of the peninsula for the final time, which was an important event in the closing exchanges of the Reconquista, the reconquest of Muslim lands in the peninsula by Christian kingdoms. This was the state of the known world in 1347, or certainly the areas that would be most closely affected by the oncoming pandemic that would change the world. The outbreak would certainly not be the first major outbreak of disease in recorded history. There is evidence within texts of an outbreak of plague within the Hittite Empire which existed during the 2nd millennium BCE and even evidence of the Hittites sending infected animals to their enemies 
which means that it has been cited by historians as the first known case of biological warfare. We have also discussed some serious epidemics in earlier episodes of this podcast. During the 5th century BCE, while the polis of Athens was dominating classical Greek politics, its great leader Pericles succumbed to an outbreak of plague within the city walls of Athens itself. The plague of Athens could have killed as many as a 100,000 Athenians, which was one in four people. Such was the seriousness of the Athenian plague that it was surely a major factor in the decline of power of Athens, leading to a rise in power of the Spartans and a change in the direction of history. The same could be suggested of the Roman Empire. The empire was at the peak of its powers during the second century until a plague of disease initially affected the military before spreading through the population. This epidemic, named after the ruling dynasty of Rome, the Antonines, changed the direction of history as the Romans had to abandon all of their aggressions in the Middle East and concentrate on the defence of its own territories from Germanic tribes such as the Marcomanni. Once again, it could have accounted for a quarter of the population, but on this occasion we are talking about millions of individuals. A few centuries later in the time of the Byzantine Empire, during the important 6th century rule of the Emperor Justinian, a plague broke out which may have wiped out a fifth of the population of Constantinople. But experts link this outbreak to other outbreaks of plague elsewhere over the course of the next two centuries, leading to it being referred to as a pandemic as opposed to an epidemic. They also consider this to be an outbreak of bubonic plague, which is the same type of plague that was about to strike Europe in 1347. Causes The word plague can be a little hard to describe. As an actual disease, plague comes in three different forms, which are bubonic, pneumonic and septicemic. However, when any infectious disease spreads, then that spread can also be described as a plague. For example, the Antonine Plague, which affected the Roman Empire, is believed to have been an outbreak of smallpox, which is not something that falls into one of the three plague disease types. Septicemic Plague affects the blood, while pneumonic plague affects the lungs. Bubonic plague is characterised by swollen lymph nodes, an important influence over the body's immune system. Humans have around 800 lymph nodes in their body. Inflamed lymph nodes are referred to as buboes. All three of these plague types, bubonic, pneumonic and septicemic, are caused by bacteria called Yersinia pestis. This bacteria can be carried by a minute animal called Xenopsilla chiopis, 
more commonly referred to as the rat flea. Rat fleas can live on any warm-blooded mammal, but are commonly found on rats. If rats are carrying plague, then the rat fleas who feed on their blood can then carry the infection to humans. So it has been supposed that a dispersal of rats into human populations could have spread the infection. The Mongols were ruling China, but the Chinese were attempting to fight back against the Mongols, which led to a great destruction of the countryside. Some have suggested that it would be this destruction that caused infected rats to move into populated areas, where they would be in closer contact with many humans. In the 14th century, there may have been over 400 million people alive in the world and a healthy transcontinental trade system existed linking the populations of the known world and therefore the chances of a pandemic as opposed to a localised epidemic were substantially higher. The nature of the disease the three forms of plague are believed to have been active, but due to the visual symptoms, it has been commonplace for historians to label this as an outbreak of bubonic plague. The rat fleas would bite their human host, having already fed from the blood of an infected rat, and it could be determined in the majority of cases where on the body the bite had taken place and the infection started but often it would take perhaps three to five days before the human host would be aware that they had been infected. This is because this is when the symptoms would first appear. Egg-shaped lumps called buboes began to appear near the location of the bite and this would often be around the victim's groin or their armpits. The Italian writer and poet called Giovanni Boccaccio was possibly in Florence to witness the outbreak of plague which would devastate the city's population. He would describe the buboes in some cases being the size of a common apple. General ill feeling was likely to be experienced by the victims such as headaches, chills and weakness. Bruising of the skin and bleeding from the orifices of the victim's body will then often take place. The cells of the victim's body can begin to die and especially in the extremities of the body. This process is called necrosis where the cell will not develop correctly and its membrane ruptures causing it to collapse. The victim's extremities such as their fingers and toes and their nose and lips will blacken as the cells die. Victims would unwittingly produce a foul stench as their bodies deteriorate. Bubonic plague did not always result in death, but more often than not it did. And it would be within a week of the symptoms appearing. So from the time of the original flea bite, most people would die within two weeks and very possibly sooner. Another Italian called Matteo Villani was born in Florence and worked as a cleric in Naples before becoming a writer in his later years. 
He also survived the period of the Black Death that swept through the lands of Italy and he described the symptoms of those who contracted the pneumonic version of the plague. He noted that the victims would spit blood and then very quickly they could die within a couple of days. So it seems that it was a lot harder to detect the disease within the pneumonic plague victims than the bubonic plague victims. This is because the disease is contained within the lungs. For the septicemic plague victims, it was even less detectable, with the bacteria infecting their blood and therefore the body displaying very little in the way of symptoms and the infection very suddenly overwhelming the victim. The journey of the disease. After the Mongols had expanded from the Far East across to Eastern Europe and the Middle East, their vast realms fragmented, as can often be the case when an empire is too large. The Golden Horde was the name given to the section of the Mongol Empire that was centred around the steppe lands of the Pontic Caspian Steppe and the Kazakh Steppe, still a vast area. The coastal lands directly to the west of the Italian peninsula belonged to the Republic of Genoa. Genoa was a highly successful maritime republic actively seeking to establish trade colonies on foreign soil. They would travel the length and breadth of the Mediterranean Sea, very much including the passage through the Aegean Sea and the Sea of Marmara through to the Black Sea. The Black Sea is a large body of water and on the northern edge is a large landmass called the Crimean Peninsula. The Genoese purchased the Crimean trading port that they would call Kaffa in the late 13th century from the Golden Horde. Kaffa's modern name is Theodosia. The relationship between the Genoese and the Golden Horde over the town of Kaffa was quite strained over the following half a century. Different leaders had different attitudes, with some Golden Horde Khans besieging the town and others choosing a more diplomatic relationship. After Jani Beck became the Golden Horde Khan in 1342, he would target the town again by placing it under siege. However, during the siege it appears that the Golden Horde troops were hit by the plague, devastating their numbers. It is pure speculation based on scant evidence how this happened. There is a train of thought that suggests that the disease was carried westwards along the Silk Road trade routes from the lands contested between the Mongols and the Chinese all the way over in the Far East. A theory exists that the movements of rats due to habitat destruction in the midst of warfare caused infected rats to spread from the forests to the cities due to food shortage and on the rats' deaths in the city, the infected fleas had no choice but to jump to human hosts who migrated along the Silk Road to the lands around the Black Sea. It is said that when the Golden Horde soldiers besieging Kaffa started dying off from the disease, that those still alive started propelling the dead bodies of their comrades over the city walls and this created infections among those occupying the city. 
Those with a much more sober outlook on history suggest that it is more likely that the town simply became infested by infected rats. It seems very possible that Genoese traders left Caffa with the disease, but this is not universally agreed by all historians. It is favoured by many that these Genoese traders escaping the chaos are responsible for transporting the disease along the sea route to other trade ports as well as many islands of the Mediterranean Sea. Rats aboard the ships are likely to be the method by which the infected fleas made it to the Mediterranean trading ports further west. It would not be long before the disease was present in the cities of Constantinople and Alexandria before travelling further westwards to the important trading cities of Genoa and Venice. Other coastal trade ports would then experience the infection before the disease would quickly spread through the populations in the towns and cities. Terrified residents would attempt to escape the built-up areas for the possible safety of the countryside, but all they did was carry the disease to the countryside, where those newly infected people would attempt to flee to the towns and cities desperate for help. By 1348, the disease was rife across most of southern Europe and had spread across North Africa and across the Levant, and by the following year it had spread across the Middle East to Baghdad and had taken over the lands on both sides of the Strait of Gibraltar as well as heading north through all of the French lands and across to the British Isles, before going on to Scandinavia and through the Holy Roman Empire by the end of 1350. It had swept across Europe and the Middle East in just a small amount of years. We're also aware that the disease had spread southwards in the Arabian Peninsula from Sinai through the Hejaz to the lands of Yemen. By 1353, the disease had spread eastwards through the cities of Kiev and Moscow. Impact and Reaction One of the problems with the Black Death is that until modern advances in science since the 19th century, nobody understood the disease. There was absolutely no way for people to know that the Black Death was anything to do with rats or fleas, or to even be completely sure about how it was transmitted. Their understanding was purely down to observation. It was obvious that it was contagious, but it wasn't obvious how. In fact, we're not even totally confident that we have the reason correct in relation to the rat fleas, with other experts asking the question of why other animals apart from rats could not be a part of the chain, and why other parasites such as body lice could not be involved. So people living through the Black Death turned to medical professionals, and the medical professionals were forced into a position of taking guesses about how to understand and deal with the disease. The numbers of people dying were colossal. In the Italian city of Florence, it is stated that three quarters of the population were killed by the plague. 
It is difficult to imagine how this must have felt for the people of Florence who may have initially believed that they were witnessing the end of the world with seemingly everyone around them first becoming infected and then dying very quickly afterwards. It is likely that stories of the plague reached European and Middle East cities before the disease did itself as merchants would have reported stories of great devastation in cities that they had visited. When the plague hit towns and cities, the impact would be felt by the community, and it would also be felt by the individual. The rapid amounts of death in the community would have had consequences for public infrastructure so central governance would have been interrupted, causing a degree of lawlessness. However, when we consider the impact to the individual, we can see a much more grim reality. The mental anguish of seeing those closest to you, such as family members, both young and old, slipping away and then having to go to sleep wondering if you were going to be the next. The behaviour of each individual under this kind of stress would differ from person to person. Some individuals would rally to the cause of their city by assisting with public services. Understandably, there would be an urgent need for keeping the community as clean as possible with the demand for the removal and burial of bodies. Medical professionals would have to put themselves in a position of great risk by attending to the highly contagious sick people. Others would not be able to deal with the situation and would flee in panic, deserting the community and worse still, deserting their families. Giovanni Boccaccio retrospectively described the breakdown of family units and in the worst cases, parents abandoning their sick children, effectively disowning them. Those who abandoned their communities and families would have to live a life of shame to those who didn't. As mentioned before, nobody had any idea about what caused the Black Death. So it would be perfectly natural for people to make up their own minds about the cause and indeed who was responsible or who should be blamed. Some who believed in God causing the outbreak would not blame God but would blame themselves, while others would blame other religious movements, believing that they were sabotaging food and water in order to wipe out rival religious movements. Although in reality this was hard to justify as the plague did not care about the religious identity of the individuals that it infected, so everybody was suffering the same fate. In the Muslim communities of the Middle East, death could often be seen as a glorious eventuality, so some would believe that the Black Death was created by Allah to take individuals to a place of glory, guaranteed a place in Jannah, the Garden of Paradise. Clergymen were equally choosing to either abandon their flock or tend to the ill. Some would abandon the flock not just through fear of their own lives, but because they believed that this was a divine punishment and this was God's will. Others would see it as their occupational duty to administer last rites to those who were dying, and this could often end up 
with the priest contracting the disease himself. Those who believed that God was punishing them for their sins chose to gather together and pray for forgiveness. Burial pits were being consecrated and when the burial pits were full, rivers were being consecrated so that bodies could also be dumped there. When the Black Death did not subside due to these religious functions, people started to move towards extreme acts such as flagellation. Flagellation during the Black Death was an act of self-punishment where the flagellants joined ceremonial marches from town to town, whipping their own bodies violently as an act of penance. The Catholic Church did not condone this extreme behaviour and Pope Clement VI eventually declared it as a form of heresy. Pope Clement VI also condemned Jewish pogroms, which were occurring in certain Christian communities who were firmly pointing the finger at the Jewish community for attempting to poison Christians with this plague. In some very extreme cases, hundreds of Jews were being rounded up in buildings and the buildings were being set ablaze. And in other cases, Jews were being expelled from the community. But as mentioned before, Jews were not immune from the plague, so this must have also been realised by many as a completely irrational reaction. Others turned to medics for their solutions. Science did not understand the disease, so medics would have little or no chance of combating it. Some of the more simple remedies for relief would consist of foodstuffs such as vinegar and treacle, that could be mixed with herbs such as wormwood and sage. Those who claimed that such concoctions guaranteed immunity could potentially sell their secrets for favours from those who desperately were willing to believe anybody or try anything. Onions were also suggested as something that could draw toxins from the body when rubbed on the afflicted areas. The other thing that was so terrible about the disease was the overpowering smell from the victims after breaking out in the buboes while their health was rapidly declining. The power of the smell of the onions was seen as an aid to combat the pungency of the disease. Even worse than vinegar was the use of human urine as a mixing fluid for medicines containing herbs. Victims might be encouraged to bath with urine mixtures or even drink them. Open buboes may have been treated with a paste based on human faeces mixed with plant extracts. Perhaps the most bizarre treatment that I have read about must be the act of strapping a live hen to the swellings. Specifically, it would need to be the hen's backside that would need to be in direct contact with the swelling. and This would mean that the bird would unfortunately have to go through the ordeal of having its feathers removed from its backside area. The reality is that this method is likely to have done more harm to the chicken than good to the human. Social Consequences Knowing how many people in the world who died from the Black Death during the period from 1346 to 1353 
would rely on guesswork based on evidence. Tens of millions would have died in Europe alone, and it is likely that many millions more would have died beyond the boundaries of Europe. Estimates suggest that between a third and a half of all people in Europe perished as a result of this wave of plague. Such an elimination of human beings in established societies would have had practical, sociological and psychological effects on communities and individuals. When the wave of Black Death came and went, the plague would come again and again. This meant that the plague was a constant danger. We know that the Black Death was not the first emergence of the plague, as the plague of Justinians during the 6th century was the plague, and we also know that the plague exists in the world to this very day, albeit very isolated. The Black Death was particularly considerable due to the profound effect that it would have on the population of the countries that were affected. The likelihood is that the plague spread quickly due to the high numbers of population in Europe, making transmission of the disease quite easy. Suddenly, populations were slashed. In the feudal societies of Western Europe, there was a dependency on the network of relationships between overlords and servants or slaves. Farm workers went from abundant to scarce, so the value of farm workers increased due to increased demand. This meant that farm workers could demand better working conditions with higher wages and lower rent. Generally, in a feudal society, families would be bound to the lands on which they worked in a system called serfdom. Now the balance of power favoured the peasants, which some historians cite as a notable event in the general decline of serfdom and feudalism, as the lower classes were able to become more enterprising. Society in general was forced into a position of having to face death by the plague as a realistic, imminent and sudden threat. The fact that the plague could kill anyone from any class with no regard, whether it be peasant, priest, nobleman or even king, would have a deep effect on the psyche of individuals within the populations. Generally, faith in God was not diminished as much as one might expect, but people began to question the church and whether it was advising the practices of religion as God would expect. This could be argued as something that would become a factor in the feelings of Europeans that led to the Reformation, which was a 16th century Christian challenge to the behaviour of the Roman Catholic Church. We can be somewhat confident in the change in psyche when we look at how the arts began to change as a consequence of the Black Death. We can see that the emergence of portrayals of something called the Danse Macabre, or the Dance of Death, would become more common. The Danse Macabre can be found in literature, paintings and murals and plays. 
the dance would be performed by skeletons who would select individuals to dance with them. The individuals could represent anyone from any class of society, but the dance would take them towards their graves. It is highly likely that these skeletal characters influenced the emergence of the character who we recognise today as the Grim Reaper. Another observation of society is that marriage was something that became more urgent among these European populations. This is likely because there was more urgency to procreate in order to outnumber the danger. Despite the fact that the period of the Black Death had come and gone, the plague was not gone. And even though it would never hit the population with the same level of impact and percentage of mortality again, it would certainly re-emerge in waves periodically going forward. Humankind, especially in Eurasia, had to accept that they were now sharing their world with this dangerous disease. Well, that was a tough grind, wasn't it? That was a really morbid episode, but uh, the Black Death. And uh, thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast. And uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's move on from that one. Now, if you like the podcast and you want to support the podcast, then why not consider making a monthly donation? It can be for as little as $1 a month. And uh, with uh, the History of the World podcast, we uh, we send you gifts through the post and, and invite you to take us up on our rewards, which might be special episodes on the subject of your choice or just even having a question answered during the course of the podcast. All of these rewards are open to everybody. It doesn't matter how much you contribute on a monthly basis. Uh, the History of the World podcast will accrue your total contributions, and we will use that amount to uh, offer you the reward. So, for example, the $50 reward, which uh, enables you to um, to receive a gift pack in the post, you don't have to sign up to make $50 a month contribution to get that. You can make five $10 a month contributions and you will still qualify to get it. So uh, there's every reason to uh, get involved if you do enjoy the project. Um, we will invite new members to the History of the World podcast Illuminati, that exclusive club of patrons to the History of the World podcast. Uh, Cassandra Castle, Corbin Havener and Mark Thrasher this week. Um, although I do think a couple of them uh, have already been uh, History of the World podcast Illuminati members in the past anyway. So anyway, uh, but uh, welcome all of you into the History of the World podcast Illuminati and thank you very much for supporting our wonderful project. The Ancient World Cup. It's quarter final time in the Ancient World Cup. The competition where we get you guys, the hot worlders, the listeners to the History of the World podcast to vote for who you think is the greatest ancient nation. And uh, we're down to our final eight teams. Uh, those teams are the Macedonians and the Franks, the ancient Egyptians and the Sumerians, the Romans and the Anglo-Saxons, 
and the Athenians and the Achaemenid Persians. Now we need to boil it down to the semi-finalists and this week's match was between the Macedonians and the Franks. So voting has taken place all week on the Facebook page, the unofficial Facebook fan group, the Twitter feed and on Instagram. You've all been voting and this week we had 83 votes which could be the highest amount of votes we've had on any of, of the one uh, matches so so thank you so much for getting involved and taking part well let's find out what the history of the world podcast listeners think about who should advance between the macedonians and the franks john s smith uh, said he voted for the macedonians because they conquered almost everything and the franks made the hot dog uh, until he had second thoughts and say and said, "Okay, wait, this just got closer." Uh, on reflection of how popular the hot dog is, I dare say, Jason Drever um, voted for the for the Macedonians, uh, st- stating that the Franks are just Germans who thought that they were better than everyone else. Uh, however, Brenda Wass was on the side of the Franks, and she said. Their importance to Western civilization was the reason why they should go through and uh, they led uh, through their king Charlemagne. And uh, so there we go. That's what the History of the World podcast Illuminati members thought of, um, or the Hot Welders, I should say, They're not Illuminati members necessarily, the Hot Welders, the listeners to the podcast thought of who should go through. The Macedonians, um, yeah, Maybe Alexander the Great versus Charlemagne. Maybe that's another way of looking at it. Uh, but out of the 83 votes, um, there was a significant winner this week. And uh, with 69% of the votes, uh, despite a little late rally from the Franks at the end, it was the Macedonians who won. Now, they will go through to the semi-finals where they will meet either the ancient Egyptians or the Sumerians. Macedonia, uh, or Macedon, as we may refer to it back then, could they cause a huge upset in the semi-finals? Uh, let's wait and see. We'll have to wait a couple of weeks for that. This week's quarterfinal, we're all going to get voting again next week, so get involved on the social media pages for the History of the World podcast. It will be the ancient Egyptians versus the Sumerians, two of the most to the oldest civilizations that we have records for, the the to the oldest historic civilizations, and uh, in some ways the two uh, the two societies who brought writing to planet Earth. We could look at it that way. Uh, so, if you have an opinion as to who is better between the ancient Egyptians and the Sumerians, please do go to the social media pages from Monday and cast your vote. Listener messages and reviews. Dave Shatford wrote in again this week. He, he wrote in last week. He just put, um, just a thought, you may want to keep this in mind for the future once you complete the podcast series. It seems like a long way away. Um, I'm going to go to Egypt and Jordan in September. Fantastic. On an intrepid tour. While I'm sure that guides have some knowledge of the area, you have an extensive background of knowledge that you have built up during your podcast series. 
It seems to me to be a great marketing opportunity to approach the likes of Intrepid and suggest a new product, e.g. Ancient Egypt, hosted by History of the World podcast creator Chris Hasler. A guide would still come to organise the day-to-day admin of the tour so that you could focus on your specialty, providing the history behind what people are looking at. I'm sure uh, an in, I'm sure a Intrepid or another tour company would love to have access to your podcast listeners to market their, their product, and B, your listeners would have uh, would love to follow you on a guided tour of the ancient, classic, etc. world. Further, those interested in the ancient, classical, medieval, etc. world would also be interested. Um, well. Thank you very much, Dave. I wonder, I wonder if anyone in the History of the World podcast uh, listeners um, would uh, would be interested in that. Any hot worlders for a tour of Egypt? Um, Brian Bailey has written in and has put in, Hi, Mr. Hazard. I've been listening to the podcast for two to three months and I'm up to volume three, episode 55. Uh, in it, as well as other Volume 3 episodes, you mentioned a special episode about the Picts. However, I'm not un- I'm unable to find that episode on Apple Podcast or Google Podcast. From what I can gather, it was published in June 2020. I can find the other special episode from around that time, but not this one. Has it been deleted or moved to another volume? Uh, while I don't agree with the evolutionary theories related to pre-human species presented in Volume 1... I have thoroughly enjoyed the other aspects of Volume 1, 2 and 3. I enjoy your storytelling style and sense of humour. I too, like others, listen to you at 1.5 times the speed, which nicely condenses an episode into my commute time. Um, respectfully, Brian Bailey. Well, thank you, Brian. I suppose, um, yes, the, the the episode about the Picts was rewritten and recorded uh, earlier in this volume. It was episode 20, so you can still listen to that one. Um, you, I'll, I'll be interested to hear your views about evolutionary theories related to pre-human species. That would be interesting because, of course, it's a very, very speculative science and it's ever-changing. So it'd be interesting to uh, share all the points of view and just see if any of the listeners relate to it. That would be great. Um, And, um, well, yeah, once again, listens to me at 1.5 times the speed. I'm I'm afraid my brain uh, doesn't work as quickly as maybe other podcasters. So... So I like to uh, I like to be quite measured in the way that I present and listen to my podcast, if I'm honest. But thank you, Brian. Thanks for the message. Absalem has written in and said, I love the show, but when you turn people down with the idea of translating your work because it has no financial supporter, to paraphrase, I think you're completely forgetting how you're able to do this show. If you can get Patreon supporters for your Languages World History podcast, why wouldn't there be other language speakers wanting to pay and support one in theirs. Uh, It wouldn't need to start as a full-time job, of course, but there's always people out there that like what someone else likes. I had a Spanish shipmate and he said translations don't always land well, as you've said yourself. So having people make their own podcasts in their own language will get more in touch with knowledge and turned on to these topics. Um, Well, um, Absalem, 
Um, it's it's not really anything to do with um, finances for me. It's um, certainly something that I just don't have time to invest in the translation of the podcast. So whenever anyone approaches me about translating the podcast, I think they have to understand that there's now almost 200 episodes and like with with the episodes being between four and five thousand words you can only imagine how much work that would take someone to do it and it would have to be a labor of absolute passion because um i couldn't guarantee that there would be a financial reward for it so, so i'm not talking about any financial gain for me here i'm talking about um i i I am not sure whether people who offered to translate the show actually um, realise the the magnitude of the job that they're they're potentially wishing to take on, and and maybe they do. But um, for me, that would always be the first question I would ask if I'm if I'm one of the dragons in Dragons Den. That would be my my first thing if someone was pitching me this idea. I would say, well, do you have the time and a motivation to do this? even if there's no financial reward for you. So that's, that's really where I sit on it. It's not nothing to do with um, what I can earn from it or, you know, the fact that I don't want people to translate it. I would love to have my podcast translated into many different languages. So so just to clarify my position there, but um, thank you so much, Absalom, for showing an interest in that. It's, re- it's really good that people care about that uh, subject and, and maybe one day it may come. Reviews this week. Mr. Grimes has written in and said, Thank you, Chris. Have only recently started listening to this podcast. Currently working my way through season one prehistory, a subject neglected by most other history podcasters. Chris is entertaining and easy to, easy to listen to. The podcast is well researched and very educational. Thank you, Chris. And uh, Seattle Lifelong Learner uh, has written, Incredible. My husband and I. Just discovered this extraordinarily well-researched and entertaining podcast. We are riveted and learning so much. Bravo, Chris. Well, thank you ever so much. Now, don't forget, if you do want to support the podcast, just click on the Patreon link and uh, sign up to make a monthly contribution. It really does help for me to invest in uh, materials that uh, enable this podcast to be better. Uh, So do consider that. Also, for those who uh, have signed up through Patreon, there will be a Patreon uh, episode this week uh, where we just uh, broadcast a brief um, sort of 10 to 15 minute episode about how this week's episode was written and some of the resources used. And so if you're interested in that, um, even if you sign up for $1 a month, you can actually listen to a little bit more History of the World podcast. So do consider... Uh, going over there and listening to some more but uh, for those of you uh, who are leaving us now uh, don't forget join us next week we'll be talking about the hundred years war so that will be the next one it'll be an introduction to episodes about the battle of Cressy and the battle of Agincourt and the siege of Orléans so until then until next week uh, don't forget please be good The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show 
at History of the World Podcast at mail.com. And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. See you next time.